an American Airlines A300 crashes in Queens, New York, just months after 9-11. How did overflying the aircraft cause this terrible disaster? Welcome back to the Hard Landings Podcast, everybody. <laughs> so <laughs> Was I a little overdramatic? Maybe a little bit. <laughs> okay, well, anyways, welcome back. I'm Nick. I'm Miranda. I'm Christy. And this is episode 17. Yes, 17. Yeah. Excellent. Good, good. Today we are covering American Airlines Flight 587. This is a big in. A bunch of New Yorkers just cringed. <laughs> I'm sorry. I actually know a little bit about this one. Yeah. Yeah. Not, I'm sure not all of it, because whenever I've only seen the Air Disasters episode, and whenever you've only seen the episode, there's always stuff in the report that you don't there's know There's lots about. of new information. Um, actually, in this episode, I nerd out a lot. I don't know if I necessarily cover a whole lot more than the Air Disasters episode entails, but... You probably do. <laughs> I think so. From a little bit that you've told me, it... To be fair, I haven't seen it in over a year, so I, I'm not 100% sure, but I do know that it's probably going to get a little more detailed about certain parts of the plane than I actually know. So yes. I'm going to go into so much detail that I'm probably going to have to edit Brands out. <laughs> yes. That's okay. Okay. So this flight occurred on uh, November 12th of 2001. Now you see why a bunch of New Yorkers just cringed. Because it was in New York. It was in New York, and this was two months after 9-11. There, were, a, there a... were literally people, sorry. No. There were literally people that, um, when this happened, they thought it was happening again. They thought yep. that someone was coming to that hit something else. This was a flight from JFK in New York to Las Americas International Airport in Santo Domingo in the Dominican Republic. Dominican Republic, which I don't even know if we fly there anymore, do we? Oh, I'm Probably. sure somebody does, yeah. Anyways, the captain was Ed States. He was 42 years old. He had 8,050 hours at the time of the incident total, of which 1,723 hours were on the A300. The first officer for this flight was Sten Mullen. He was 34 years old. He had 4,403 hours total, with 1,835 hours on the A300. If you haven't figured out yet, this was on an Airbus A300-600, with a tail number of November 14053. At 7.10 a.m. Eastern Standard Time, a fueler arrived at the airplane and began fueling the airplane. At that time, one of the pilots performed a visual check of the outside of the aircraft. Sometime between 7.30 and 8 a.m., the captain reported to maintenance personnel that the number two pitch trim and yaw damper system would not engage. Two avionics technicians were sent to the airplane to examine the issue. They performed an automated test to the aircraft's flight systems and a fault was found in the number two flight augmentation computer. The augmentation computer basically controls the flight controls of the airplane to some extent, but when it's in autopilot, basically. It controls those functions and makes sure that they are not being overly used by the computers and makes sure they can function in an autopilot function. And the two issues that they were experiencing were with pitch trim. So in other words, there's a fine-tune adjustment that's automatic, it's electronic, and it adjusts the, the pitch so the, the nose up and down of the airplane to make sure that it holds nice and stable. Basically, without having to hold the flight controls at all, you should be able to get that airplane to stay stable at any speed by using pitch trim. The other issue they were having was the yaw damper system. The yaw is the rudder, and the rudder controls the yaw of the airplane left and right on a horizontal plane without the airplane tilting left or right. And the yaw damper reduces the amount 
of input needed for a left and right and reduces the amount that the rudder will travel. We covered it a little bit when we covered the series we did a few weeks ago. Yep. So if you need more information about rudder stuff and all that kind of jazz, you can go listen to those. Yep. So when they performed that test, they found the problem on the number two flight augmentation computer, but the avionics techs that were in the cockpit then turned to the circuit breaker pulled and reset the circuit, performed the same test as well as a couple others, and found no issue after that. And then they left the cockpit. They were only there for about five to seven minutes. The aircraft then pushed back from the gate at about 8.59 a.m. At 9.02 a.m., the captain tells the first officer, your leg, you check the rudders. So basically he's saying, the first officer, by saying your leg, he's saying, you are flying this flight from here to the Dominican Republic as pilot flying. It's your job to check the systems of the airplane. So the first officer was the pilot flying on the flight to the Dominican Republic, and the captain was to be the pilot flying on the return. At 9.11 and 8 seconds, air traffic control instructed a Japan Airlines 747 that they were cleared for takeoff on runway 31 left. And at 9.11.36 seconds, air traffic control instructed American Airlines 587 to position and hold on runway 31 left and to caution the wake turbulence from the departing 747 on the same runway just ahead of them. At 9.13 and 28 seconds, air traffic control cleared flight 587 for takeoff on runway 31 left. The captain acknowledged this clearance. At 9.13 and 35 seconds, the first officer asked the captain if he was happy with the separation distance between them and the 747. Three seconds later, the captain responds, we'll be all right once we get rolling. He's supposed to be at five miles by the time we're airborne. That's the idea. At 9.13 and 46 seconds, the first officer replies, so you're happy. At 9.13 and 51 seconds, the airplane began its takeoff roll and lifted off at 9.14 and 29 seconds, about one minute and 40 seconds after the 7.47. That's pretty close. At 9.14 and 43 seconds, the air traffic controller instructed Flight 587 to fly the same departure procedure as the 747 and to contact the departure controller like the 747. The airplane began a climbing left turn to follow on this departure procedure. The captain contacted the departure air traffic controller, reporting that they were at 1,300 feet, climbing for 5,000 feet. At 9.15 and 5 seconds, air traffic control instructed them to climb and maintain 13,000 feet. The captain acknowledged the instruction five seconds later. At 9.15 and 29 seconds, the captain stated, Clean machine, indicating that the landing gear, the flaps, and the slats were all retracted, and the airplane was good for cruise flight. I kind of like that. Clean machine. Clean machine. I know, I liked that term. I called that out specifically just because I like his term. Clean machine. At 9.15 and 35 seconds, the plane was climbing through 1,700 feet with wings level when air traffic control instructed them to make a left turn. At 9.15 and 41 seconds, the captain acknowledged this instructed turn, and that was the last time that they were ever heard from. Bizarre. Well, at 9.15 and 36 seconds, the airplane had experienced several G-shifts consistent with what would have been wake turbulence from the 747. We talked about wake turbulence before. We I did. Don't, I don't know if this is the same. You said there's like two types. So, well, sort of. But wake turbulence in this case... Um, normal wake turbulence is you're flying behind an airplane in front of you that airplane if you're too close basically there's small vortices coming off the ends of the wings like tiny tornadoes that come off horizontal tornadoes that come off the ends of the wings and they get bigger and bigger and bigger the further back they go but they eventually dissipate and if you're too close to that airplane you hit those vortices and they can knock the airplane out of control it causes issues yeah it causes issues but i mean it would it wouldn't necessarily always knock the airplane out of control, but it can be, like, pretty nasty it turbulence. It can be bumpy, yeah. yeah. Like, it's not the end-of-the-world kind of turbulence, but it's something that should have been preventable. Right. Because there's supposed to be 
unless this changed after this crash, I'm not quite sure, to be perfectly honest, but there's supposed to be a certain amount of time before our next plane takes off. Right. So that they don't hit the wake turbulence of the plane that just took off. And they were too close, but that was those regulations were in place. That's beside the point. At 9.15 and 36 seconds to 9.15 and 41 seconds, the flight controls were being very heavily manipulated manually by one of the pilots. Would have been the first officer as he was the pilot flying. At 9.15 and 44.7 seconds, the captain says, little wake turbulence, huh? At 9.15 and 45.6 seconds, first officer says, yeah. At 9.15.48.2 seconds, the first officer asks for speed to be set to 250 knots, which is the maximum allowed below 10,000 feet. The airplane was at 2,300 feet at that point, above the ground. The airplane experienced wake turbulence again at 9.15.51 seconds, and the control surfaces were again heavily manipulated manually by the first officer. At 9.15.51.8 seconds and 9.15.52.3 seconds, and 9.15 and 52.9 seconds, thumps are heard. Those three times. So in the course of just over a second, three different thumps are heard. At 9.15 and 54.2 seconds, the first officer stated in a strained voice that he wanted max power, even though the airplane was traveling at a healthy 240 knots at that moment. At 9.15 and 55 seconds, the captain asked, you all right? And the first officer replied, yeah, I'm fine. One second later, the captain stated, hang on to it twice. At 9.15 and 56.6 seconds, a snap is heard. At 9.15 and 57.5 seconds, the first officer stated, let's go for full power, please. <laughs> well, that's not going to help anything at this point. However, yeah, the captain did not oblige. He did not put the airplane at full power. At 9.15 and 57.7 seconds, a loud thump is heard. At 9.15 and 58.4 seconds, the right rear attachment fitting for the vertical stabilizer, or the tail, the which is the actual part where the rudder is held, fractured, and the vertical stabilizer separated from the airplane. That turned it into a giant paperweight. Basically. During all these thumps and, and voices back and forth, the control surfaces were still being manipulated very heavily, including the rudder pedals. At 9.16 on the dot... A grunt comes from one of the pilots. One second later, the first officer uh, states, holy expletive. That is how it's written in the report. <laughs> holy expletive. <laughs> holy expletive. I can think of a few words to fill that. Yeah. Uh, yes, very much so, yeah. At 9.16 and 4.4 seconds, a stall warning is heard for 1.9 seconds. At 9.16 and 7.5 seconds, the first officer stated, what the hell are we into? We're stuck in it. At 9.16 and 12.8 seconds... The captain stated, get out of it twice. The aircraft then impacted the ground at 9.16 and 15 seconds in a nose-down position in the Bell Harbor neighborhood on the Rockway Peninsula of Queens, New York. So, when I watched the episode on this, the air disasters episode, and I think I also watched the air crash investigations too, there was a lady who lived in the neighborhood it crashed in, and she came back and found that her house was completely destroyed, mm -hmm. and her husband and her son were supposed to be in there. I think they weren't. I think they, they left weren't. to do something. No, they were inside. But they managed but they to get managed out. they managed to get out, yeah. And she was like, oh my gosh, my house is gone! <laughs> like, she was like, I just left like 20 minutes ago! And yeah, she, she was, was on her way to work out. or something. Yeah. And, um, so basically, this flight was less than two minutes long from takeoff 
to impact. Yep. All of this happened very quickly. The aircraft was completely destroyed on impact in a large explosion due to a very large amount of fuel that was on board, since it was departing, as well as the impact forces. Four homes were destroyed, three homes had substantial damage, and three had minor damage. Additional damage occurred to a gas station and a home with a boat in the driveway nearby, as well where the engines had impacted the ground after separating from the plane in midair while experiencing heavy forces. I wonder why. Yeah. In the end, 251 passengers, seven cabin crew members, two flight crew, and five people on the ground perished, including a passenger that had survived the 9-11 attacks just two months earlier. Oh, I remember that. Yeah. For a total of 265 perished, making it the second deadliest aviation accident in U.S. history. For the record, her name is Hilda Mayor. She was the one who survived 9-11? Yeah. She was working in the lobby of one of the towers. Yeah, she worked on the ground floor and managed to get out. Well, I mean, if you, that's probably the best place to be. Uh, we'll that talk would have about been that. the best place yeah. to be. We'll talk about that at a different time, but it's probably the best place to be. It's very unfortunate that she ended up dying, though. Yep. In a plane crash. A couple months after it took place. <laughs> right. That's so unfortunate. Yeah. Okay. This investigation began with both the NTSB and the FBI on the ground going through wreckage. Since they suspected that it might have something to do with 9-11, they had the FBI involved. Investigators sorted through the wreckage and sorted it into plane parts and not plane parts, and the NTSB hauled away the plane wreckage, leaving the FBI to what amounted to basically a crime scene. There were many contradictory witness statements. I, there was a fiery explosion, no, it was intact, blah, 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 nope. Both organizations took the suspicion of terrorism very seriously and started there. The NTSB investigators looked through the wreckage and failed to find any fracture the metal that would have been caused by an explosion. At the same time, samples were taken to look for explosive residue. While waiting for those results, the black boxes were found about a day after the crash. Additionally, the vertical stabilizer was found miles away from the crash site. It was found in Jamaica Bay, the body of water that the plane had turned over on its way out of JFK. This was the first glimmer of hope that the incident was not an act of terrorism. If it was a bomb or something similar, they would not have targeted the vertical stabilizer as there was no way to reach it from the inside of the plane. Upon analysis of the cockpit voice recorder, or the CVR, no sound of an explosion was recorded. Between this, the lack of explosion evidence in the wreckage, and the lab results that ultimately came back negative for a residue, and no suspicious activity at the airport or the background of the passengers, the FBI ruled out terrorism and bowed out of the investigation. The NTSB resumed the investigation looking for either mechanical failure or pilot error. During further analysis of the vertical stabilizer, they found that all three fittings that hold that part of the tail to the tail basically had failed. The vertical stabilizer, the rudder, and the attachment fittings were all made of a composite. Christy's gonna nerd out. This, was, bad. The, this was the first time the NTSB investigated a failure of a composite part, and this is the first time on the show that we were talking about it. So, of course, it's right when I start my last semester of my master's degree, and my last class is designing with composites. See, I told you. Nerd real hard. So, you've been warned. I'm gonna Super nerd hard. out so hard. No, I, I didn't plan this, by the way. A composite in this case is a type of material made with fibrous sheets layered within epoxy polymer. These fibers in this case are either carbon, you've probably heard of carbon fiber before, or glass. You've also probably heard of fiberglass. That's what this is. To make a layup of composite, you need to spread a sheet of the fiber in a mold, spread a thin layer of epoxy, and then continue alternating the two until the final product is the thickness you desire. You then cure the epoxy under heat and pressure to harden it. Another unique feature about composites is they are anisotropic. I know. Fancy terms. The opposite of is isotropic, which is what metals are, generally speaking. So, so give us a definition I'm getting of that. 
there. Literally was the next phrase. Like, you you were like, here's the opposite. I'm like, but I don't even know what that is yet. So, no matter what direction you pull or crush metal, the properties of the material, like strength and stiffness, are the same. This is not the case with composites. In different directions, they have different strength and stiffness. In this case, the fibers were laid at right angles to make kind of a crosshatch between the fibers, or a grid, if you get where I'm going with that. It's at right angles. If you pulled them vertically or horizontally, they would be really strong. However, if you pulled them at a 45 degree angle, they would be weak. However, this is all considered when designing a plane. The reason this material is used nowadays is that it is strong, in some cases stronger than certain metals, and it is so much lighter. It's like comparing plastic to metal. The newest series of the big airplane manufacturers, the Boeing 787 and the Airbus A350, both use composites to make their wings and fuselage. It makes the planes a lot lighter and a lot more efficient. At the time of this incident, however, they were just using composites for some of the flight control surfaces like the vertical stabilizer. That and the rudder were both made out of carbon fiber and fiber glass, and the fittings were made of carbon fiber. In reviewing maintenance records from American Airlines, investigators found that there was a history of delamination of the mounts, though when this happened, Airbus fixed it and returned it to the airlines. Delamination is what happens in a composite when the layers begin to peel apart, and one of the main reasons for this would be an incomplete curing of the epoxy. So, dynamic mechanical analysis, or DMA, which I myself have performed many a time, uh, was performed to find the glass transition temperature of the composite. I'm gonna really nerd out here. This temperature is basically the point when a plastic goes from glassy and opaque to leathery. That's a weird term for glass. It is the technical term. It goes from glassy to leathery to gooey. But the leathery stage is like one degree. And so it's at that temperature. And that temperature varies depending on the properties of whatever you're testing. So in this case, if the glass transition temperature or TG was lower than what it should be, the epoxy wouldn't have cured correctly. Turns out it was cured correctly and completely. So wasn't that. Microscope imaging also proved that there was no delamination between the layers, so the material itself was fine. So if it wasn't that, maybe it was a design flaw. Now, when designing anything, you have to figure out what are the forces you're expecting a part to experience, and then add a safety factor, and those numbers are what you have to design around. For example, if you are designing a glass slab for a coffee table that will hold 200 pounds of stuff on it with a safety factor of 2, you actually design a glass slab to hold 400 pounds. Pretty basic. When Airbus designed the fittings, they designed them to endure two types of loads bending and torsion. They figured out the loads the plane would normally experience with the critical loading or the maximum being gust force left or right and made a graph of torsion loading versus bending loading with three of the maximum loads depicted. There's a graph that I'm trying to show. This graph is on our website for reference. They made a graph of torsion loading versus bending loading with three of the maximum loads depicted. They are specifically labeled and one of them says gust loading. They then mirrored it across the origin of the graph for the opposite direction and connected these six points making kind of a lopsided hexagon. They then added a factor of safety which expanded the hexagon. Anything inside of the hexagon is what the plane could encounter and the fittings would work just fine. Off to the side of the graph is the result of a test that they performed after this accident. That is the value that caused catastrophic or almost explosive failure of the fittings. It was well outside the hexagon, so the fittings actually endured more than they were designed for. The force that would cause this fracture was about 200,000 pounds, and the published value that they can endure was more like like 100,000 pounds. 200,000 is way more than that stabilizer should have encountered on this flight. So what happened? So let's shift gears a little bit. In reviewing the CVR, the investigators found that the crew had experienced some bumps that they attributed to wake turbulence from the Japan Airlines 747 that took off ahead of them. I know we talked about wake turbulence in USA Air 427 and we just talked about it. 
but specifically what causes the vortices is when air splits over the wing, some of it goes faster and some of it goes slower. That's what makes lift. So when they meet together on the backside of the wing, it creates a vortex or a little tornado. These vortices continue quite a ways behind the plane before eventually being dissipated. Well, the 747 took off at 11 minutes after 9 o'clock and Flight 587 took off about 100 seconds later. This too close. They were too close. Wow. They were, they were too close in that, yes, they experienced wake turbulence. They Well, like, that's only, that's less than two minutes worth of time. Yes, however, that did put 5.1 miles between them. Which is perfect. As anticipated. Yes. Which is perfect distancing in reality. With this information, coupled with an 11-knot wind, investigators determined that this alone would not have made a wake turbulence strong enough to upset the plane in this fashion. It only would have been a little bumpy. Nothing strong enough to rip off the tail. No, that, no. That's not what caused the tail to rip off. However, it was after the wake turbulence that the tail ripped off. So the investigators looked at a combined report between the flight data recorder, or the FDR, and the CVR. The captain said something to the effect of, you okay? I can't remember exactly what he said. He said, you alright? You alright? Yeah. When they encountered the wake turbulence, and the first officer increased speed to maintain control and used the rudder pedals to make the rudder go back and forth three times by 11 degrees. This seemed odd to all the investigators. That's a lot of movement of the rudder, by 11 the way. degrees is a lot. It it's, is. If you, ever, if you heard what we were talking about in the series about the, the rudder hardovers and stuff, there's only a certain level that they're supposed to go to. And having that happen so fast, so soon, that was a lot of movement of yep. the rudder. Yep. So the 11 degrees is weird, and doing it three times in a row is even weirder. Which means he was like going back and forth on the rudder pedals yep. is what was happening. It was after this, the loud noise was heard of the vertical stabilizer coming off. When this information was entered into a simulator to measure aerodynamic loads, each time the rudder was moved back and forth, it experienced higher and higher forces because it didn't have time to acclimate to the new position. Every time he moved the rudder back and forth, it went from 100,000 pounds to 150,000 pounds. I don't know the exact numbers, but eventually it exceeded 200,000 pounds of force on the tail. The first officer is what, or rather who, caused the vertical stabilizer to come off. Those forces exceeded the fracture forces. So basically what had happened is he was moving the rudder so fast, he ended up causing the tail to come off the yep. plane. Right. In reviewing his records, the investigators found that he had a habit of doing that, and when asked, said that he was trained to do that. So, investigators looked into American Airlines training procedures. The pertinent simulation was to recover from a 90 degree roll, something that would never happen in a flight. That I'll should never yeah, happen in a flight. Yeah, that's basically unheard of in any actual situation. Trying to recover from 90 degrees is very difficult, and it just doesn't happen. No. Also, the simulator was set to not respond immediately to input. There was a delay. The only way a pilot could get out of the role in this simulation was to use sustained rudder inputs back and forth. And of course, they were told that this situation that would cause it would, would only be wake turbulence, which well, is not true. Realistically, an upset from wake turbulence would only cause a roll of like 10 degrees. Not as dramatic as, no. as going full 90 degrees to a certain not direction. This, Unless you were super duper close to the plane in front of you, and even then, probably not even. Most of the time, yeah, that's still not enough. Yeah. And it's still recoverable. And yep. also, why are you so close to that plane? You know, like you're, that should be, that's a traffic, that's an air traffic control issue at that point. Unless and I mean, yeah, you gotta attention. train for it, but it's never gonna be 90 degrees. Right. Yeah. It was an unnecessary extreme, and ultimately, this training procedure caused the vertical stabilizer to come off in a series of events, but that's the long and the short of it. Yep. That's what I got. My yep. point being, it wasn't really pilot error because he was quote unquote trained that that should was, be what he's yeah. supposed to do. He, he was, was doing what he was told. So technically, it's company 
air yeah. because they said that this if this happens you should do this and really no you shouldn't <laughs> right so what he what he was doing and what he experienced is a phenomenon called aircraft pilot coupling or apc what apc is is basically you get into this this rhythm with the airplane where you say oh i need to correct for this and then you way over correct so you overcorrect back and back and back and back and you keep going back and forth and you get into this rhythm with the airplane and it puts you actually in an out of control situation that you never intended you were intending to try to get control back but because of your overcorrections it's called aircraft pilot coupling where the the aircraft and the pilot basically work in tandem and make this over exaggeration of movements back and forth due to and this happened to him due to incorrect and inappropriate and what is called negative training yeah like that should not have been part of the training module for that right because then he was overcorrecting and then he had to overcorrect back and overcorrect back and he believed that the airplane was going through all of those forces so he was overcorrecting in each direction when really he was causing them when really he was causing the airplane to lose control instead he thought it was the wake turbulence getting worse yeah and instead he tried to overcorrect even further for that yeah and it wasn't it was him putting the plane in that situation there are a lot of people that when they go fly and depending on the airplane they're flying when they switch to another one they may have a tendency to what's called over control the airplane you're doing way too many inputs in the airplane. I actually have a, a, a friend of mine that was going through flight training years ago and he was being trained on a very smooth, easy to fly airplane and then him and his father bought a, a an older airplane, a cheap, a cheaper airplane than what he was learning to fly on and when he went to learn how to fly that airplane, the flight instructor was that was with him noticed that, man, he was like, he was fighting the controls left, right, up and down the whole time and eventually the flight instructor turned to him and go, slow down. What are you doing? Like, you're way over controlling the airplane. It's different than the other airplane you're flying. You're used to flying, but that doesn't mean you need to over control this one. And he said, this airplane will fly just as smooth as the other one as long as you let it. Right now, you're over overreacting to every movement this airplane is doing. And you're causing yourself more harm than good. And this happens a lot. That's called aircraft pilot coupling, APC. And in most cases, it's something that's very easy to recover from eventually. But there's some times where, like in American Airlines 587, you put yourself in a really dangerous situation and it they couldn't get out of it yeah like the i remember after it had the tail had snapped off basically mm-hmm. the pilot the captain was like try to get it like get it and at that point there's nothing they could do they'd fall out of the sky no matter what because there was nothing keeping them in the air at that point the yeah. tail is what really keeps you in the air it has the horizontal and vertical stabilizers on it usually and so yep without those two things like there's nothing you can do well it's like trying to shoot an arrow with feathers only on one side of it yeah it just plummets to the ground right and there's a few things that led him that allowed him basically to do this as well but we can get more into that into the findings after this brief message another day is here and you're ready for it what to wear check breakfast lunch and dinner check planning for what's next and how to save for it that's where bank of america can help for your financial to-dos bank of america has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Okay. Welcome back. So there were 18 findings on this incident of those 18s. I narrowed it down quite a bit. But because we know this was fine, and this was fine, and this was fine, and this was fine. Yeah, that was this like wasn't first... contributing to the accident. Right. This was like, wasn't contributing to the accident. It was like the first four or five of them. That's so annoying. I hate that so much. Yeah. 
So Like, we get it. We read the report. We know. <laughs> yeah. Things that they did find that were relevant. They found that the witnesses who reported seeing the airplane on fire, fire were most likely observing a fire from an initial release of fuel or the effects of an engine compressor surge. So they were trying to ramp up power, right? No, actually, they didn't. But what happens is because they didn't and the airplane nosed over and then was accelerating toward the ground at a high rate of speed toward terminal velocity, basically, then the compressors then have back pressure on them. And they get what's called a compressor surge. So I guess their statements weren't necessarily contradictory, but they didn't necessarily help the investigation either. No, they didn't depict an issue. They didn't depict it in anything that was actually an issue with the airplane falling apart, basically. They found that the cyclical rudder motions of the aircraft after the second wake turbulence event were the result of the first officer's rudder pedal inputs. We know that. They found that the vertical stabilizer performed in accordance with its design and certification and fractured in overstress, starting with the right rear lug, while the vertical stabilizer was exposed to aerodynamic loads that were twice the certified limits. Yeah, so it wasn't the plane's fault that this happened, basically. It no. was just, that's what happened because it got too much force. Right. They found that the first officer had a tendency to overreact to wake turbulence by over-controlling the airplane, or putting it into aircraft pilot like coupling. instantly trying to panic. Yes, basically he put himself in his own panic. Yeah. They found that American Airlines Advanced Aircraft Maneuvering Program ground school training, that's a mouthful, encouraged pilots to use the rudder to assist with roll control during recovery from upsets, including wake turbulence. So basically, they were being trained to get out of a roll or a bank to 90 degrees by using the rudder as much as they would the control column. They found that before the accident, pilots were not being adequately trained on what effect rudder pedal inputs have on the A300-600 at high airspeeds and how the airplane's rudder travel limiter system operates. I found this interesting. So they call out the rudder travel limiter system. So basically there's there's an automatic system that as the airplane gains speed is supposed to limit the amount of... Of input you can put on the rudder, Input that can be done on the rudder. And this airplane, the A300, is a very automated airplane. It was one of the most automated airplanes ever designed at the time. So a lot of things, including all of the flight controls, were electronically driven. So a lot more than even... You can call it like the power steering in your car, where it helps you turn the car rather than not having it. It's similar in the airplane, but it's it takes it to a whole other extreme where then it, it can limit it on its own and it can decide you're putting this much input in, but what you really mean is this based on the speed of the airplane. So we will post a picture of this graph. So the limit was 9.3 degrees and they were doing 11. Yeah, so I'm betting that the 11 degrees was before they hit 250. They were at 240 when Which, they, he was doing the inputs. So the at airspeed 220 knots, it limits it to 14 and a half degrees. At 250, it limits it to 9.3 degrees. So 11 degrees is right in between the two. Yeah. So it while probably they were... they were, it was probably too much for how fast they were. So going. 11 degrees was as far as he could push the rudder. Right. Physically, given the system. And he was giving it full rudder travel and back and forth. Back and forth. So at about 250 knots. It would have taken 32 pounds of force on the pedals to enact that kind of motion, which was the equivalent of 1.2 inches of pedal travel, which is nothing. Yeah, it is nothing. And they did tests, actually, on the A300, as well as basically every every other certified transport airplane flying in the United States, the FAA did. 
and the NTSB did, and they found that the A300 had the least sensitive rudder pedal inputs of all transport aircraft. So what they mean by that is literally it takes the least amount of force to make the rudder pedals move on the A300 and create input by the airplane because it's automated. It was too sensitive. So that, you know, he, he was way overreacting as it was, and he was putting so much pressure on the pedals that wasn't even necessary for that airplane to move. It just was. So he was overstimulating the system. Yes. So right now I'm showing Miranda a table that shows how much force it took to move the pedals this much, which enacted a rudder setting of this many degrees. And as Nick was describing, it takes a lot less force to make the rudder move a lot on the a Yes. Yes. I mean, it's similar to other, like, the A310. Yeah, the A310 was the the smaller version of the A300 that came later. But so many of the things are shared between the A310 and A300, so many parts and so many systems. They're basically the same airplane. But it's a lot lower. Like, if you look at Boeing and McDonnell Douglas stuff on here, it it's a lot more pedal force to make it move that much than it is on the Airbus ones, period. Yeah, the Airbus ones, because they're automated, are so low. Yeah. So, and again... It's, I think it's less than your car. Oh yeah, it is. It's less than the, the movements of a pedal in a car. They found that the A300-600 rudder control system combines a rudder travel limiter system that increases in sensitivity with airspeed, with the lightest pedal forces of all of the transport category aircraft evaluated by the NTSB being the A300. The... They found that the first officer's initial control wheel input was too aggressive for the wake turbulence encountered, and the rudder pedal movements were unnecessary to control the airplane. So not only was he over-controlling with the rudder, they found that it would have been completely unnecessary to use it at all, considering yeah. the wake turbulence they encountered. They it was found, just bumpy. They found that the wake turbulence they encountered was very normal amount of wake turbulence well within the limits of the airplane. It was very little in reality, and he could have just corrected with the, the literally control the control column... column just a little bit, and he would have been fine. But he was overcorrecting with the control column, plus using the rudder. So it was way over-controlled. And that's not his fault, that's training. Yeah, that's what he was trained to do by American Airlines. They found that training to make pilots aware of the effects of aircraft pilot coupling, or APC, events to demonstrate the hazards of alternating full control, and that full alternating rudder inputs are not necessary to control transport-type air aircraft at any time would be a benefit to the pilots. They found that there is a widespread misunderstanding among transport pilots about the degree of structural protection that exists when full or abrupt flight control inputs are made at airspeeds below maneuvering speed. Okay, this one's interesting. Takes a little bit of explanation. Maneuvering speed. In every aircraft, there is what is called maneuvering speed. Maneuvering speed, anything below that point, as it's understood by pilots, you should be able to put the aircraft in any sort of condition and it would stall before it would cause any sort of structural damage to the airplane. So basically the forces of the airplane it would be able to withstand and it would just stall the airplane before it would damage it. Now, this isn't always true, especially when we're talking about transport aircraft, big heavy aircraft. They still have a maneuvering speed. However, there are still limits on that maneuvering because the forces are so much higher when you're traveling at higher speeds. The airplane has a speed limit, basically, that it can, it can get to and still be able to con be controlled normally. However, there was, at the time of this incident, there seemed to be a widespread misunderstanding among pilots of all transport aircraft to the structural protection that an aircraft offers 
below that maneuvering speed. And this crash was an, a perfect example of why that was a problem. Because the airplane was under that maneuvering speed, but he way over manipulated the controls and at the speed it was at was enough to overstress part of the airplane and damage it. They found that the Federal Aviation Administration, or the FAA, standards for unusual attitude and training programs that take into account industry best practices and are designed to avoid inaccurate or negative training would lead to improvement and standardization of industry training programs. And that narrows it down for all the findings. That's good. So the probable cause in this incident, verbatim, from the report by the NTSB. The National Transportation Safety Board determines that the probable cause of this accident was the in-flight separation of the vertical stabilizer as a result of the loads beyond ultimate design that were created by the first officer's unnecessary and excessive rudder pedal inputs. Contributing to these rudder pedal inputs were characteristics of the Airbus A300-600 rudder system design and elements of the American Airlines Advanced Aircraft Maneuvering Program. So they blamed it on training that led to pilot error. Yes. That led to overstress of an airplane that led to the stabilizer breaking off that led to the airplane crashing. Which is what happened. Yep. So now for the recommendations. There weren't a whole lot of these in reality, and there was actually, there was a couple sections of recommendations, but I've narrowed this down to what's really important, what really came from this, and what really needed to be changed. The NTSB recommended modifying existing standards to include a certification standard that ensures safe handling qualities of the yaw axis throughout the flight envelope, including limits for the rudder pedal sensitivity. So literally they're saying in this one... Uh, you need to make it less sensitive. That you need to make... that They need to both demonstrate when certifying the airplane that the airplane at certain speeds will still be safe to fly using uh, a lot of yaw. However, they should make it less sensitive. And so now... They there's standards in place for how sensitive can a rudder pedal be. Like, you'd think, like, oh, it should be as little sensitivity as possible, so that way the pilots no. have as much control as possible over the airplane. No, because then you can over-input. Right. Yeah. This is one of those things, this is one of those times where it's like, wow, they actually set a standard on wanting less sensitivity. Control, yep. Less controllability of the airplane, because in reality, it would actually save the airplane and save lives. Well, and that was one thing that I feel was misdepicted in the air disasters episode is they depict the co-pilot or the first officer using the rudder pedals and they were going like four inches when really it would have been 1.2 inches. Yeah. He was not it traveling wasn't going almost very at far. all. Yeah. Yeah. They over-exaggerated. Yes. I mean, it's Which TV. really... TV in a nutshell. 1.2 inches, that's like what you do in your car. Yeah. Like, maybe even less. Yeah, yeah, exactly. They recommended reviewing the design of existing aircraft to ensure that they meet the same standards, or can meet the safety standard to avoid aircraft pilot coupling, or APC event, or to prevent the adverse effect in the event of an APC after rudder inputs at high airspeeds. So, that one was really confusing to read out, but... What they're saying there is this, that first recommendation, putting in place these standards for pedal sensitivity and for safe, safe yaw abilities during flight and demonstrating that with airplanes, basically saying, okay, put that into the qualifications for certification of new airplanes, but then the second re recommendation is to review the design of existing airplanes and make sure that they, they then follow those standards or can be modified to follow those standards. So changing the sensitivity amount on the A300 was key. And the third recommendation was, quite literally, do that for the A300. 
Literally, they were like, yep. follow recommendations one and two and apply that to the A300 as it is. They recommended developing and disseminating information to all transport category pilots that full rudder deflection is never needed to control a transport type aircraft in normal flight or unusual conditions. You shouldn't have to use the rudder that much. You shouldn't need it Ever. almost at all in unusual attitudes. If you're over certain speeds, it's just basically unnecessary. Yeah. It's only necessary during normal approach type situations and takeoff type situations. Well, even then, you don't have to use it to its You don't have ability. to use it very much at all. Yeah. They recommended amending regulatory and advisory material clarifying that operating an aircraft below maneuvering speeds does not always provide protection from structural failures against full control inputs. So again, that maneuvering speed thing. They wanted to make sure that that information was given out to all transport pilots that that maneuvering speed doesn't mean you're safe from destroying the airplane. You can go beyond its limits if you do full inputs. As proved quite explosively. Right. They recommended redesigning training programs for unusual attitudes to be more accurate to avoid negative training. So this is really a targeted at American Airlines, but also the fact that there's no standard or regulation on unusual attitude training in that they were training, American Airlines was training pilots that the airplane would go all the way to a 90 degree bank and there's nothing they could do about it before then. And it there's would literally... so much stuff you could do before then. Exactly. And it would literally limit them until like, the airplane was in that 90 degree and then they were told to way overcompensate for that. And it, there's so many things that were wrong with that. It was it was called negative training. It's, it's a form of negative training where it's putting incorrect information and incorrect handling and operation of the airplane versus what would really happen. They recommended Airbus... Add a warning to the cockpit of the A300, and they did, to alert pilots of the overuse of the rudder. So they created a flashing yep. light and an, and an audible sound to alert the, the pilots that they would be using the rudder too much on the A300. This is how Airbus reacted, basically saying, well, we can adjust the sensitivity, but moreover, the airplane is already designed like this, so it's easier to put a warning in the airplane, since it's already automated, that tells them, hey, slow down. <laughs> Don't use the rudder too much. Question. Yes. If they were to retroactively outfit that on already made A300s, mm -hmm. how long would that take to fit on? It depends. That's, I mean, they probably... Isn't that up to the airlines, not Airbus? Mm, sort no, of. No, but like literally how... If it's a regular... How long would the plane be out of commission to do yeah. that? Yeah. If it becomes an airworthiness directive, so an AD... That means it has to be done as soon as possible for well, the airplane yes. to maintain its airworthiness. But how long would it take? The reality is probably not very long. Uh, if it comes like, with a software update and then a rewiring, it could take an avionics tech one night, probably. But like for to one button, cut out the part to m cut out the dash to make a new. They make light. a special tool for that. There's literally special punches that are designed to put that same size hole, and literally all you do is you just twist the nut and it just. Punches a perfect size hole. You mount the button, and then you just wire it into the correct place. Do the update on the software. It probably wouldn't take an avionics tech, but one night. Okay. So your airplane is sitting on the ground overnight. Thank they just you. punch the hole, mount the button, run the wire. It's done. Thank you. So finally, American Airlines redesigned their unusual attitude training program, and they had worked closely with the NTSB on this to make sure that they were involved, and Airbus did as well, to make sure that these training programs were very closely you know, monitored and tr changed to be and updated to be correct and don't provide negative training to the pilots. So they want to make sure they're providing them with proper training for proper situations. Really, what's going to happen to the airplane? So they completely redesigned that unusual attitude training for the A300 to not include a 90 degree bank and limits on the rudder amount at that 
point until you're 90 degrees. And, you know, they, they made it so that it's really, truly effective. And that was it for recommendations. All right. Well, that was American Airlines... 587. 587. I always forget the flight number. <laughs> I'm like, I don't remember. American Airlines 587. Thank you for tolerating my nerdism. Thank and you for tolerating nerdism. all of us. Yeah. <laughs> Frankly, if you've been listening this long, thank you for tolerating all of us. <laughs> we appreciate your, your listening to us and all the feedback we've been getting, honestly. Yeah, it's been great. We've been getting a lot. Keep it coming. Um, Go check out our Patreon. A lot of people don't realize the cool stuff on Patreon. We also, I just added a button on the website. This comes out like two <laughs> weeks from now, but there's a button for all the sources and stuff for my Miranda sode, so if you want to look and see what the Miranda sodes might be, that's in there. And then um, what is included with everything for Patreon. A and link to it. A link to get to the page. So, And on our social media, we posted pictures of the patch which yeah. i'm super psyched about yeah if you're a flight crew member you get the patches so and we um we send a bunch of stuff with them so you can figure out what you want to do with them like velcro or magnets or we send a thing to make it iron on i'll send instructions because i know how that works and i sew and most people don't yeah so if you can go support us on patreon please do if you can't that's okay yes uh, please make sure you give us reviews and ratings. Yeah. On and spread the word. Facebook, Instagram, on the Apple Podcasts. Like, keep it coming so we can have more people listen. Yeah, and be sure to spread it. Like, help us make this wildfire. Because we really do love getting the feedback from you guys. And we want you to keep writing that to us. But also, like, then share that with everybody like yeah. make that information known like be like hey friends this is a cool thing that i'm really enjoying you should enjoy it too because you wouldn't believe how many people come up to us like just friends and people we know that are like i had no idea how interested i am in this topic until i listened to you guys like yeah. <laughs> it keeps happening it keeps happening yeah we've had derek come up to us hi derek hi derek, derek. who else <laughs> uh, your brother uh, <laughs> <laughs> emily emily, emily. Thanks, Jay. Leo finally started listening. I have two brothers. Jen. Hopefully at this time, my friend Kara's listening. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, like just, you know, if you're interested and you like it, tell your friends, tell your family. Especially tell your non-aviation friends. We have a lot of aviation geeks listening. And we really love you guys. We do. And we need you to keep spreading it. But we also need some regular listeners. Some regular people. Sorry, not to call you not regular, but you're aviation nerds just like us and we know it. <laughs> <laughs> Also, um, I don't know if a lot of people know this, there is a comment section on the website. There has been one person who's left us feedback on there. But if you feel like emailing us or trying to go on Facebook is too much or whatever, um, you can comment on the website on anything you see and on stuff you don't see if you want to see more of something I'm in charge of the website, so if you want to see more of something or something change, let me know on there. And so. we really do see everything you guys write to us, whether it be in a recommendation, a review, yep. or an email. I mean, every single one of us gets all that stuff, that information on we our phones. We all read it. We're, yeah. we're, we're an indie podcast. This doesn't go to some corporate whatever you're no, writing to. We us. really do see this stuff, and we really do respond we to We really you. do appreciate it. Like, we keep, we get, every week or so, we get about a couple recommendations or some um, someone messaging us about something, and it's, it's great. Like, and we thanks. have a group chat between us and Sonora, who's our social media coordinator, and every time something cool happens, we'll all, like, blast it to each other and be like, look at this! Somebody likes us! <laughs> <laughs> Nerding out a little bit over you guys. Yeah, we were listened in... Um, 
over 30 states and over 30 countries. So we yeah. finally got a French yeah. listener, guys. Yeah. We did. It's yeah. a little while. Awesome. It's amazing. We do talk about Airbus quite a bit. So welcome, French friend. It's amazing that it took I France you said this long. French <laughs> French. Thanks, friend. French fry friend. <laughs> Don't hate us. <laughs> Fries are not French. They are an American creation. Actually, I think they're a British creation. They're Belgian. They're, are they, they Belgian? Okay, there's so much debate over this, but okay, me, we... <laughs> me having been to Belgium, this is. Okay, this Belgian. is going to happen in our Okay, anyways. Post, anyway, yeah. have a Thanks. good week. Yeah. Have a good week. Yeah. Keep, Keep your airspeed up. Please like and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Hard Landings Podcast and on Twitter at Hard Landings Pod. Also, subscribe and leave us a five-star review on whatever platform you're using to listen. If you want to see photos and sources for this episode, please visit us at hardlandingspodcast.com, where you can also leave us feedback and ask questions. This episode was researched and written by Nick and Christy. Our theme song was written by Miranda and performed by all three of us, plus Leo. And our logo is by Naomi, and our social media is coordinated by Sonora. Catch you next time.